0: Our guests
1: are here, unfortunately, still alive. We're almost
2: at home. God, get your hands. There is no way out of here. Stay no to drugs and stay out of the basement. You're listening to Final Girl Friday. Welcome back to Final Girl Friday. My name is Molly. And I like scary movies. I talk a lot about underdog films here on the show, so this is not the first time you've heard me say this, but tonight we'll be talking about one of the most criminally underrated films in horror history, Dead and Buried, from 1981.
0: What can you remember about a sealed box, a sealed casket? That is obscene. That is the death of memory. The cosmetologist gives birth. I make souvenirs.
2: I saw this for the first time just a couple of years ago, and it blew me away. I knew immediately I had discovered a new all-time favorite. And there are definitely a lot of Dead and Buried fans out there, but not as many as there should be. We'll take a look at the film's story, production, and reception. Then Gory Rory will be joining us. I finally roped Rory into coming onto the show to talk about why this movie means so much to him. Before we can dive into it, I do have a couple of quick points of interest. Voting is now open for the 2023 Fangoria Chainsaw Awards. There are 19, categories, including a write-in ballot for Best Kill of 2022. Tons of great nominees, but the most important one to me is the fifth category, Best First Feature, for which Deadstream has been nominated. I feel like one of those annoying neighbors that if I could, I would put like a fucking placard on my front lawn, you know, just vote for Deadstream. <laughs> it was my favorite movie of 2022, and I just, god, they fucking, they deserve all the awards. <laughs> They're also doing a t-shirt giveaway for voters, and then there's the I Voted sticker you can download when you're done. It's it's a good time. If you're interested, go to Fangoria.com forward slash vote, and vote for Deadstream. <laughs> Sorry. I'm being obnoxious, but 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 vote for Deadstream.
1: After Mildred's death, eleven more people died in this house before it was finally boarded up in 1956. That's what ah! Shit! shoot! I meant shoot! Please don't demonetize me, Livid. This is an intense situation.
2: Next up, I was reluctant to bring this up because we have so few details at present. It's still in early development, but things are looking pretty good for a new sequel to I Know What You Did Last Summer, a proper sequel, with Jennifer Love Hewitt and Freddie Prinze Jr. reprising their roles as Julian Ray. Sony has said they intend to pass the torch with this movie rather than outright reboot the franchise, which is also encouraging. The film will likely be directed by Jennifer Caton Robinson, written by Leah McKendrick, which would also make it the first I Know What You Did film both written and directed by women, which would be neat. It's hard not to be skeptical, and part of me would always prefer we just stop capitalizing on existing properties and make brand new ones. But I also love I Know What You Did Last Summer. It's such a fun, classic feeling, you know, textbook slasher movie. I think it gets a lot of undue hate. And I won't pretend I'm not excited at the prospect of seeing Hewitt and Prince Jr. in these roles for the first time in 25 years. I really wish they could find a way to bring Helen back as well, but I. <laughs> Obviously, that that probably won't happen. The other thing about this is it does, you know, kind of perpetuate this hope I've been feeling lately with Evil Dead Rise, Screams 5 and 6. And now this, we also have an Exorcist sequel in the works and so on. I'm hoping that this is all indicative of us finally breaking free from the remake and reboot trend, moving into one where the concern is more continuing the existing stories. Maybe that's just wide-eyed, naive Hope talking, but I hope it means studios are finally going to loosen their grip on the whole reboot craze.
1: What are you waiting for, huh? What are you waiting for?
2: For a little recommended reading, over at Ghouls Magazine, Egrain Hackett Cantabrana brings us the nine greatest satanic and occult films of all time. This list includes, of course, Haxan, Suspiria, Prince of Darkness, which I was really happy to see that made the list. I also just realized that I've talked about Prince of Darkness in every episode I've released this year. (laughs) I, we should probably talk about Prince of Darkness at some point. And then lastly, over at theconversation.com, this article is actually a couple of months old, but I stumbled onto it the other day, and it was it was such a good read. British Folk Horror, Hauntology, and the Terrifying Nature of the Ordinary by Robert Edgar. The article, which seems to have been written in part to help promote Edgar's new book, Thomas Hardy and the Folk Horror Tradition, distills folk horror down to its key elements being landscape, isolation, a skewed belief system, and happening or summoning, and examines the inherent, sort of realness of the subgenre and the ways in which that makes it one of the most terrifying. The article is sort of centered around Thomas Hardy's The Withered Arm, lifting that up as an exemplification of the folk horror tradition and sort of building from there. It was just, it was a really great read. All right, I think that's all I've got for tonight, so without further ado, it's time to dive into the movie. If you're new to this podcast and you don't hate it, stay tuned until the end of this episode for information on Final Girl Friday Elsewhere. And as usual, if you haven't seen Dead and Buried from 1981, proceed with caution, there will be many spoilers ahead. right let's talk about dead and buried directed by gary sherman written by ronald shusett and also kind of dan o'bannon but that's that's a whole big thing and we'll get to it it stars jack albertson james Ferrantino, melody anderson and a young robert england it was released in may of 1981 i feel like this movie is a good follow-up to in the mouth of madness they are very different movies but they have a couple of things in common most notably for me and i I mentioned this when we talked about in the mouth of madness a couple weeks ago i'm personally a big fan of stories that center around one lone intelligent individual trying so hard to solve a mystery and when they finally do solve it nothing changes them knowing the answer does nothing to alter the outcome of the story with in the mouth of madness it was john trent and in dead and buried it's dan gillis so dead and buried tells the story of potter's bluff a charming little town off the coast of maine where everybody knows everybody and the tourists are brutally murdered. The film starts with one such murder. A photographer visiting from out of town is seduced by a beautiful woman on the beach, then viciously attacked by a large group of townies. They beat him, burn him at the stake, photograph him as they do this, and then stage it to look like a car accident. The town sheriff... Dan Gillis, suspects foul play, but the victim is so badly burned it's impossible to get any information out of him, so he conducts an investigation throughout the town. While Gillis is trying to figure out what happened, the photographer is murdered in the hospital by the same woman who seduced him at the start more bodies begin to crop up. Basically anyone from the outside who's unfortunate enough to wander into Potter's Bluff is killed by a large number of its residents. And very few people in the town can tell Gillis much of anything. Even the ones who we've seen murdering people, they all seem equally clueless as to what's going on. And that's one of the things I like most about this movie. The film sort of rocks you back and forth between this idyllic small town setting populated with sweet, friendly people And these gruesome death scenes where those same friendly people are killing the shit out of some tourists, there are no winks to the camera. They're not playing anything for the audience. They seem like really great people when they're not beating someone to death. It's, it's really unnerving. And it creates this air of paranoia that just gets thicker and thicker as things progress. We, the audience, know that half the town is responsible for the murders. So for Gillis, the question is who. But for us, the question is why. All roads keep leading back to the town's eccentric mortician, William Dobbs, who takes great pride in his work as a restorative artist, and Janet, Gillis' wife, who he starts to suspect might be living a double life. Things get even weirder when the photographer suddenly reappears good as new going by a different name working at a filling station in town
0: it's a guy who looks just like him it's, it's a... the same guy man, just oh. then i was standing right next to that man, man and came down. you ask your wife
2: gillis also accidentally hits a man with his car and his arm gets Stuck to the grill. It's like moving around in this incredible effect, which we'll, we'll talk about the effects in a second because they're amazing. He takes a sample of the flesh to be tested by a doctor and learns that if the flesh is to be believed, the man he hit had actually been dead for months. Gillis eventually discovers a home movie of Janet sleeping with another man, then stabbing him to death while half the town, including Dobbs, stand around watching and laughing. Gillis goes to the morgue and confronts Dobbs, who reveals that practically all the residents of Potter's Bluff, including Janet, were killed, restored, and reanimated by him as zombies, in the more mythological sense. They kill mindlessly on his orders to keep him in corpses so he can continue perfecting his art. He refuses to reveal how he does this, whether by voodoo or by some kind of medical miracle, saying he'll take the secret with him to the grave. And um, then he goads Gillis into shooting him by revealing the final piece of the puzzle, that even Gillis is one of his creations. Gillis has a complete breakdown as we cut back to that home video that Gillis was watching. And this time, the identity of the man Janet was in bed with is revealed. And we realize that it was Gillis that she murdered. Dobbs' ultimate goal was to restore and reanimate himself, which, let's face it, would be the ultimate power move for a mortician, so he had been leading Gillis to him all along. Dead and Buried was initially meant to be a dark comedy, which was the main draw for Gary Sherman at the time, but the company responsible for the film was sold twice during the production, and of course, everybody involved had big ideas and opinions about how it should be made, so the film we got in the end was very different from the one they began with. But I personally believe, and I know this is a bit of a controversial opinion, but I, I think it was all one big happy accident. The humor that survived, it feels a little absurd, a little awkward when nestled into the rest of the film in a way that reminds me a lot of Twin Peaks. There are little moments like uh, there's the kid, I think his name is Jimmy, blocking Gillis's way in the doorway to the morgue and he's he's trying, giving hand signals to try to hint to Dobbs that Gillis is standing right behind him. That That moment cracks me up. And the whole character of Betty, Gillis' secretary, she's so funny. She reminds me a lot of Lucy from Twin Peaks, if Lucy had been in her 60s. The comedy they retained in the final film, it becomes more obvious with every rewatch. I laugh just a little more every time. So I don't know. I feel like what they ended up with works really well. And the spirit of that initial vision is still present throughout the film. It's definitely a violent and shocking movie though above all else. My main takeaway when I saw it for the first time was that it was just so much more grotesque and disturbing than I had anticipated. And there are a lot of reasons for that. The crew worked really hard to throw the audience off kilter. You've got such creative camera work from Steve Poster. A lot of fun behind the scenes trickery. Just there were quite a few innovative methods of shooting designed to set you on edge and they get the job done sherman deliberately omitted the color red from the majority of scenes in the film to make seeing the blood at the end all the more powerful a lot of attention was paid to making sure that this was more than anything a very unsettling film and the biggest contributors to the effectiveness of the horror of dead and buried are stan winston's special effects
0: have used bent aluminum combs for dentures I've used the back part of the scalp when there was no front part. And I folded one hand over wadded up newspapers when the other hand had no fingers. You find all this obscene, Sheriff?
2: I have no doubt if you're listening to this, you're probably aware of who Stan Winston was. But in case you aren't, he was a true legend. One of the most prolific and gifted special effects and makeup artists we're likely to see in our lifetimes. He worked on... Everything. The Terminator, to Aliens, Predator. He designed the live-action dinosaurs for Jurassic Park. He worked on Lake Placid, which is just one of my favorite creature features from the 90s. Uh, Galaxy Quest. Just so many movies that sort of shaped the way we see the world, the, the concepts that he brought to life in film. I think help shape the way that we imagine things, if that makes sense. Also, the very first movie he ever worked on, it was a TV movie called Gargoyles. He did the gargoyle makeup. It was his very first movie as an SFX artist and he won an Emmy. He was just, he was a fucking superhero in his field. Dead and Buried was so fortunate to have him. Some of the effects in this movie are among the best I've ever seen. The character of Dobbs specifically wanted the corpses he worked on to be brutalized because the worse their injuries were, the more of a challenge it was to restore them. And we actually get to see the full restoration process with a hitchhiker who's killed. And it's just phenomenal. It's, ugh, it's this slow time-lapse with this intimate, steady shot of a dummy designed by Stan Winston that just, it looks completely real. And at one point, You know, after Dobbs has inserted uh, one of the eyeballs into her empty socket, the camera pans up to linger on Dobbs for a minute while he's working and then pans back down. And during that time, the dummy was removed and replaced by the actress, Lisa Marie, we pan back down and you can barely tell a difference. It's it's just mwah, chef's kiss. <laughs> Stan used a couple of really beautiful dummies in Dead and Buried. I think the most famous scene in the film or one of them is when Freddie, the photographer, has been taken to the hospital and he's in full body bandages. All you can really see is just a little bit of his mouth and one eyeball. Everything else is all wrapped up. Nurse Lisa, who was also the woman from the beginning of the film, just walks right into his hospital room and finishes the job by stabbing him directly in the eye with a syringe at no point that we see freddie lying in that bed is is it ever an actor it was a fully reticulated dummy that looks so real it's movements everything you just you i had no idea that that wasn't an actor in those bandages there was one effect that didn't work quite as well when the doctor who was helping gillis is uh, pinned down and they pour acid down into his nostrils and his face kind of bubbles up and melts that effect uh it looks frankly terrible but according to sherman it was also the only effect in the film not done by stan winston and it was added much later so apart from that apart from the acid kill it it really is just one of the most impressive films i think i've ever seen in terms of kills and practical effects and i want to jump back actually to some of the onset trickery little techniques they use to kind of throw everything off something that sherman and poster also did was they they did a lot of symmetrical framing In this film, so there are a ton of shots where everything on screen looks a little too symmetrical, a little too perfect, which, if I'm not mistaken, is also a technique they used in Twin Peaks. My favorite shot in the film is when they're sitting in the hallway outside of Freddie's room at the hospital. You have Gillis sitting on a couch on the right, and the doctor sitting on a couch on the left, and you have the hallway leading out behind them. And as they're talking about Freddy's condition and just about, you know, the strange things that are happening in the town, we see nurse Lisa in the far, far distance, walking down the hallway and turning into Freddie's room. And I fucking love everything about that shot. It is so unsettling to me. It's doubly frightening when you know what's coming, when you know why she's going into that room and the death that follows but yeah it's just a beautiful shot and i hadn't thought about it before until i was listening to gary sherman's commentary how the symmetry has a lot to do with why it feels so unsettling another powerful asset to the unnerving nature of the film is joe ranzetti's score freddy
1: okay
0: yeah yeah i think you look like a freddy all right okay okay i'll be Freddie, and you can be lisa i always wanted to meet a lisa That's a really
2: pretty name. It's so interesting, especially at the beginning of the film. You know, we're watching this brightly lit, well, it's brightly lit compared to the rest of the movie, but, you know, this bright, sunny, beachy scene backed by a a windswept romantic score as these two people meet on the beach and... You know, they're really, they're clearly really into each other and he's taking pictures of her. We also get some shots through the lens of his camera, which is fucking cool. And you forget what kind of movie you're watching because this opening scene. The seduction of Freddie is so long and Joe Ranzetti's score is so romantic. You just forget that you're not watching like a romantic drama from the 70s. That's kind of what it feels like until, of course, things change. The mob shows up and ambushes him. The music changes so abruptly and that first death is so brutal. It's all very jarring. When I think about Dead and Buried... The artistry that went into the horror side of this horror film is, it just has a lot to do with why this is like a desert island favorite of mine. And then, of course, you have a wonderful cast. James Ferrantino is an excellent everyman. He's got that small town sheriff thing down, and he plays up the frustration really well as the mystery intensifies. He goes crazy, and I love how hard he leans into going crazy. I feel like I'm right there with him, especially when he finds out about Janet He's sort of forced to shoot her and then follows her out to the cemetery and watches as she's like burying herself alive and begging him to bury her. It's just, oh God, the look on his face, it breaks my heart. He evoked all the right emotions for me. And Melody Anderson, who played Janet, she did a wonderful job as well. You want to hear the really creepy part? Yeah! (laughs) Okay?
0: (laughs) In order the master to retain the control over the souls of his undead he had to cut out their heart and keep it hidden
2: Her personality is so endearing, but when you know what she is, it it makes it really fucking scary. She's equal parts charming and creepy, and she just gets creepier and creepier with each viewing. Gary Sherman once said that he never understood why Anderson's career didn't go further than it did, and I'm right there with him. I I completely agree. I thought she did a fantastic job in this, and I would love to have seen more from her. The most memorable performance in the movie, in my opinion, is that of Jack Albertson. This was his last live-action film. Film role. He died shortly after the premiere and he was very sick, like at death's door the whole time they were filming. Most of the time, when the camera wasn't on him, he was sitting in a wheelchair with an oxygen tank. There were times when he fell asleep, like in the middle of rehearsal, or I think even a couple of times in the middle of scenes he was filming. And it just blows my mind that, you know, knowing that, knowing how sick he was, he still turned out the best performance in the movie. And and it was a very physically demanding performance as well. You know, I mean, just considering his age and his condition, he had to like climb under a car at one point. He does this sort of Michael Myers sit up when he's uh, waking up from a nap in a mortuary cabinet. And I mean, at the end, he's basically embalming him himself and while he does look noticeably thinner than he had been in previous films you really can't tell that he's months away from dying I just I feel like he he really turned it out and Albertson was just such an adorable man that he he makes Dobbs adorable in a way that he probably isn't supposed to be like this whole everything that happens in the movie happens because Dobbs was a self-indulgent arrogant man treating an entire town of people like his little puppets like it's he's a villain. He's, he's evil. But he's so goddamn cute. By the end, I'm happy for him, just that he gets to do the thing he really wanted to do. You know, he gets to basically perform this really badass surgery on himself in the hopes of reanimating himself. And I don't know, it's, <laughs> it's a very inappropriate reaction, I guess. But I, I just think that Dobbs is such an endearing character. A sealed
0: casket. That's what you have me burying there, a sealed casket. Now, if you had been able to find that poor boy's family, they might have asked me to perform some of my magic
2: you know Dobbs, sometimes you make me sick and of course it's great to see robert england playing essentially an everyday type guy i mean apart from the fact that he's a zombie who's murdering people he's pretty much just your average everyday townie in this and it's great lisa blount who played uh, nurse lisa the girl on the beach she had this dead-eyed stare that i think was kind of the most apropos for this world. You know, as I said, all the townies are zombies who are mindlessly following orders, but I feel like Blount went just a step further with it because there is nothing going on behind her eyes most of the time. And I feel like that was intentional and it makes for some very scary scenes with her. I am terrified of Nurse Lisa. And I I love that. Across the board, the cast did an awesome job. There's a campy quality to the acting, but it counteracts the violence and the atmosphere in a way that sort of diffuses some of the things that might otherwise have been very difficult to watch. It is obvious at times that the film had some production issues. As I mentioned, there was that last minute edition of the acid death that pales in comparison to the effect by Stan Winston, there's also a rather long sequence. Sherman refers to it as the haunted house sequence which features painfully obvious ADR. I'm I'm not even sure it would bother other people as much as it bothers me. I'm just particularly sensitive to ADR for some reason. And it's undeniable that all the dialogue during that sequence was done in post. But they couldn't work with the child actor that they needed for those scenes at night, so they had to tent off that whole area where the abandoned house was and load it with fans, which made all the dialogue delivered on set unusable. So there are reasonable explanations for most of the film's flaws. The one thing that's still a bit of a question mark for me is the extent of Dan O'Bannon's involvement with this film. As I mentioned earlier, the screenplay was largely written by Ronald Shusett, who is perhaps most well-known for coming up with the original story of Alien with Dan O'Bannon. And O'Bannon received a screenplay credit for this as well. But the story goes, from multiple sources including Gary Sherman, Ronald Shusett, and even Dan O'Bannon himself, that he really didn't actually contribute much to the screenplay. O'Bannon was brought on to doctor the script at some point, and... According to him, like by his own account, he really didn't do a whole lot of work to the point where he was reluctant to have his name included in the credits. But because O'Bannon's name carried a lot of clout sherman and chusette or you know somebody in the production was very insistent that o'bannon's name be used there are rumors floating around out there that o'bannon disowned the film that he was ashamed of it never wanted any part of it and to be fair he did say things like that in interviews but in different interviews he also said that he loved the film and that he was happy to have his name on it so it's really hard to say what i can say for sure is that a lot of people so many people refer to this as a dan o'bannon film i've seen it called an unsung piece of dan o'bannon's legacy i've i've you know seen people completely leave out chusette's name entirely and just say that this was written by dan o'bannon something about that just feels really wrong to me when i think of dead and buried i think of it as a film written by ronald chusette
1: now boys don't be riding danny here too hard he's apt to leave this town we're lucky to have him
2: Back in 1981, Jennifer Dunning of the New York Times said of the film, Placid streets, sleepy seashore, and terrified faces are seen in a mist of soft light as if they were glimpsed from behind a sea-sprayed window. Some fine character actors, led by Jack Albertson as the town coroner, have a field day with various colorful sticks, and Mr. Farantino and Melody Anderson are convincing as the sheriff and his pretty haunted young wife. And at its end, the film goes comically berserk, Mr. Albertson again leading the fray. So while there's very little information about the budget, the box office returns, or, you know, critical reception in general of the film still available today, back in 81, the New York Times gave its stamp of approval. It seems these days it falls within the 3.5 to 5 star range for most people. It's sitting at 6.5 out of 10 stars on IMDb, around 68% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Even Spooky Astronauts over on YouTube gave it a 6 out of 10, saying that the movie kind of lost her at the end, but noting that if you're someone who enjoys a good kill, this is definitely the movie for you. So I think the response to the film from those who have seen it could be a lot worse, but... For me personally, despite the production problems and the controversy surrounding the screenplay, I think Dead and Buried is one of the best movies to come out of the 1980s and it is definitely in my top 10 list of favorite horror films ever made. A few fun facts before we get Gory Rory in here. Back in 2013, Guillermo del Toro told Trailers from Hell that Dead and Buried was one of his all-time favorite films. And he told this great story about how he was too young to get into the theater to see it, so he wore a very obviously fake mustache in order to make himself look older. And it worked, so... (laughs) Good on you, Guillermo. The film is set in Maine, and atmospherically Potter's Bluff, it looks and feels very much like a foggy New England town, but it was actually shot in Mendocino, California. On the day that they were filming the beach scene with Freddie and Lisa, it was so bright and sunny and beautiful that they actually constructed this massive flag that hung from a rig over a cliff to block out most of the sunlight, and it's still the brightest scene in the movie. Which, I again, I really like, because it creates this stark contrast between how things begin and where things go due to its violence and Stan Winston's amazing special effects Dead and Buried was classified as a video nasty back in the 80s which after we talked about the funhouse last month a couple of you reached out to me and asked me about video nasties so I thought maybe I could try to break it down here but I do recommend speaking of spooky astronauts she has a fantastic video breaking down the complete history of video nasties and there's a, a great article on Collider entitled Sex, Drugs, and Driller Killers The History of Video Nasties that I highly recommend reading but basically, and I hope that I can explain this well, video nasties was a term used to describe a collection of over 70 films, typically low budget and exploitative in nature, that were distributed on VHS throughout the UK during a time when the market was largely unregulated. So you had these advocacy groups consisting of, you know, members of the media, the church, concerned parents, etc. They were all worried about the influence these films would have over the general public, namely their children. And that led to an excess of censorship and sometimes the outright banning of these films. You had movies like I Spit on Your Grave, The Evil Dead, Last House on the Left, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre that were all being either heavily cut or just banned. And uh, Dead and Buried was among that list of films.
0: My God, it's just awful. Yesterday. It's just terrible.
2: You got enough cream there, Dan? Okay, I'm going to take a quick break, and when I come back, we'll be talking with Gory Rory, who introduced me to Dead and Buried, about why he loves it so much. <laughs> Why are you doing this? Why are you trying
0: to kill me?
1: Okay. Hold on. I am so glad that you asked. I'm trying to kill you because I love your podcast. But it takes you weeks, sometimes months, to upload new content.
2: Wait, really? You like the show? Yeah. But... if you kill me, I won't be able to post anything at all. Don't do that. Just pledge to my Patreon.
1: You have a Patreon?
2: Yeah, I do.
1: Well, I kind of sank all my money into this whole murder plan, so...
2: Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Masks aren't cheap. The, the lowest tier is only a dollar.
1: Well, that's a pretty
2: sweet deal. Right? And in the... And the more patrons I have, the more freedom I'll have to focus on creating new episodes of Final Girl Friday.
1: Which means more regular uploads.
2: Yes! See, you don't need to kill me. Just go to patreon.com slash finalgirlfriday. Okay, but
1: we came all the way out here, and I have put a lot of work into this, so... I'm still gonna kill you.
2: Oh, are you friggin' kidding me? I'll be sure to check out the Patreon once you're dead! Oh, that made- Gory Rory, as I live and breathe. Welcome to Final Girl Friday.
1: Well, hello, thank you. Yeah, nice no. to be here finally again for the first time. <laughs> Definitely haven't tried this before.
2: No, not at all. This is not. This is our very first brand new attempt at you being on the show. Mm-hmm. For those of you who are new here, Gory Rory, whose name is actually Liam, is a very multi-talented, multi-faceted member of the horror family. Uh, he is a composer, sound designer, editor. Producer, Sonic Exorcist. He's worked on films like Unknown Caller, directed by John Gonzalez. Uh, casting call. He's currently producing and uh, composing the score for an upcoming feature, The Demon of serling by archiko Productions. That'll be out in December. And he composed the opening theme, the closing theme, and the segue music that you hear here. That you hear here on Final <laughs> Girl Friday. Hear here. Hear here. <laughs> How are you, Liam?
1: I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> It's a hell of an introduction.
2: Well, I mean, I could have, I probably could have gone on and rambled on for another 30 minutes about how many fucking hats you wear, you know? Oh God,
1: no, please don't. (laughs) It's bad enough trying to keep track of it. I don't need it pointed out to me.
2: (laughs) No, I'm so glad that I finally got you onto the show and I'm so glad that this is the movie we're talking about. I know that it means a lot to the both of us. So you actually introduced me to Dead and Buried for the first time. I think it was, I don't know, like a year and a half ago, two years ago, something like that. Mm -hmm. When was your first experience with this movie?
1: I was younger, probably 16, 17. I was still in high school. My father had shown me all sorts of classic horror movies from like Jaws, Phantasm, Halloween, all of those, and... This was one of those that was kind of on the fringe. It was one of the weirder ones that he'd shown me. Um, it was one that I hadn't heard in like the, the general zeitgeist of like popular horror movies or classic horror movies, and I think he uh, got me the, the DVD or the Blu-ray that had come out. He ordered it, and we watched it you know, shortly thereafter, and that was my introduction to it. So I wish I could say it was something cool, like we watched it one night on television or something, or had a longer history with it. but um...
2: No, I think it's great that you saw it so young. I mean, 17, 18, especially considering that a lot of people don't discover dead and buried until much later in life. I mean, I know that a lot of the the reviews that I've read were from people saying, how the hell did I go this long without hearing about it? So I think you were fortunate to see it, you know, kind of earlier on in your horror life. (laughs) Yeah. Did you like it when you first saw it?
1: Yeah, no, I thought it was great. Um, It just, it felt like watching a a full-fledged movie of the Twilight Zone (laughs) that isn't the Twilight Zone movie. Just how nightmarish it is. And um, it felt like a perfect marriage of elements from Phantasm and elements from The Fog, and Mm -hmm. yet very much its own beast and um, just superbly creepy and atmospheric and clever, very clever, Dead and Buried. Oh, yeah, Um, absolutely. But yeah, so in short, I loved it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it it is interesting. You know, I really didn't get into Phantasm until after I met you, and then also (laughs) after you, after seeing this movie. And so my first time watching Dead and Buried, I, I really didn't, no, to make that comparison. But after seeing the Phantasm movies, it made so much sense to me that Dead and Buried was a movie that you really loved. And mm-hmm. and I agree, too, about the, with the similarities to The Fog. Um, I mean, obviously, atmospherically, I think that's... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but I love that. I, I love that they were able to create a very realistic illusion of it being this sort of foggy New England town. It's one of the things that I mm-hmm. enjoy most about the atmosphere. It sort of feels like that classic ghost story that The Fog was with the sort of weird headiness of phantasm at the same time Mm -hmm.
1: one of the main things i love about dead and buried is just the look of it this quiet little seaside town everything looks a little run down and not quite used as much as it should be nothing's really clean The, the amount of detail they put into making everything look just off and wrong and there's always fog everywhere Fucking everywhere. But even (laughs) inside, there's like this level of haze, even Mm -hmm. in houses, which is so just surreal and strange and wrong. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it just it makes everything feel murky and confusing and like everyone's just kind of wandering around in this weird hellish place and yeah and i mean it's it's that combination of um maybe not necessarily coping with death but it's still talking about death in a really interesting way that you know other zombie movies uh weren't at that time and that combination of disgusting death but then also like you said kind of in that vein of a classic ghost story and this weird like purgatorial atmosphere everything from the set design to the cinematography to um, the lighting, just all of the work that went into the look of the film and yeah. the, and the feel of the film when you're watching it, um, I think that's one of the the major standout elements for me. But then the other one, obviously, is the um, practical effects for all of the the horror <laughs> in the film. And I, I think the two of those things juxtapose, are really fantastic working elements because you have that classiness, that kind of classic sense of a ghost story and it feeling like a a very much like a nightmare like something rod serling would have concocted for the twilight zone just how clever and how eloquent the movie is but then you pit that against stan winston's practical effects (laughs) and how gross those are and yet even even he doing his work um like the facial reconstruction scene all of that it's a gross scene and it's it's morbid but at the same time it's beautiful which oh, i think is a, a message of this film too but yeah it does have errors uh, as you pointed out yeah. all of the adr things which i'm oh. now noticing more since you pointed them out sorry <laughs> um yeah thank you for breaking the film for me <laughs> yeah, no problem <laughs> um, but uh so it has like little hiccups now and again and like the the p- practical effect that wasn't done by stan winston but all of that aside it seems like they got as much as they could for the money that they had it seemed like everyone was really trying to pull their own weight in making this film and it just it looks fantastic it feels fantastic it sounds fantastic and I, I know that the beginning of the film there's a reason why the beginning of the film starts the way it does with that still photo that then becomes motion yeah um, which i love yeah it's really cool but every time i see that it makes me think i'm watching like a, a 1970s um horror movie made for television yeah
2: no absolutely it just kind of
1: has that feel to it of like we didn't really have the budget for opening the sequence so here's a still <laughs> photograph and title card all right um which it's fine, and and again, once you've seen the entire film, you kind of understand why it starts with a still photograph that becomes motion. I think there's yeah. definitely some um, kind of poeticness to it, whether that was intentional or not.
2: Oh, I think it was. Well, I mean, you remember the billboard in Potter's Bluff? You know, it's that idyllic, you know, very very sweet and charming looking innocent billboard that says a new way of life. Which is, I mean, the the underlayer, like what that's actually saying, and what it, its double meaning is. Fucking disturbing. And Mm -hmm. I feel like the idyllic setting of Potter's Bluff in that still photograph, when we when we look back, we reflect on days past and we think, oh God, what a quaint little town. I think there was a lot of thought put into the way that the film opens. But I also agree that it has it gives off very strong made-for-TV energy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It is one of those things that um I would be curious. Someone watching this film for the first time, especially horror fans, we're just we're so used to looking for certain things. We expect certain twists and certain elements. Where not much gets by us if we've seen <laughs> many horror films. And in this instance, I am I would be so curious. Someone watching this for the first time, if they would catch on to what that billboard means. Yeah. Because if you think about it. That billboard spoils basically the main plot of the movie, which is Potter's Bluff is essentially Potter's Field, where everyone (laughs) is buried, you know, just in one spot and all of that. Um, But then the whole thing about a new way of life, they're all being reanimated. The the billboard spoils the entire movie, and we see it within the first, (laughs) what, 10 minutes of the movie?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: So, yeah, I just, I love that about this movie. It just, it it doesn't care Mm -hmm. if you... If you've seen the movie, it's like, oh, huh, I get that now. But I, I would be curious if anyone picked up on that before, like, like
2: right away. Yeah, I would be very surprised. The, if, if if somebody looked at that billboard and was immediately able to determine all of its many nuanced meanings, <laughs> I, I, I would I would be terrified of that person because that it is. It's one of those things that becomes glaringly obvious upon rewatch. But it was just, I just thought, oh, that's sweet. That's cute. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously there will be something a little sinister happening. We've already seen that that opening kill. We know that the town has its problems, but it. it you don't think to the depth of the billboard at the beginning same thing too with uh dobbs's speech his very first speech to gillis also kind of lays out his entire motivation Mm
1: -hmm. everything
2: that fuels him to do these horrible things he just spells it out in plain english for gillis like right at the start yeah and i love that again the movie doesn't give a fuck the movie's just like here you go (laughs) like Mm
1: -hmm. yeah and i just i love the way that this film works that it it's not really hiding anything from you.
2: Yeah, it's hiding everything from Gillis. Yeah. It's not hiding much at all from us. Which
1: just goes on to make him such an interesting protagonist that he's he's this victim from the start that's part of this very twisted game that he doesn't even realize he's absolutely, I guess I wouldn't say a pawn, but, you know, definitely a higher player in the in the chess game as, um, as Dobbs uh, refers to it. Mm-hmm. So... It's, it's so interesting following him through that because we can pick up on the details with him, but we're very much with him through that entire journey. But then I think that makes it all the better when he has the rug pulled out from under him not once but twice that I think we can share that a lot easier.
2: Yeah. Um, well, so who was your favorite character in the film, would you say?
1: It really is easy to, to say, Dobbs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I love the rest of the cast. I think um, everyone just gives standout performances in this. Um You know, James Fiorentino as Dan, he does a fantastic job. And of course, I love seeing Robert England in this. But yeah, when when (laughs) it comes down to it, um, Jack Albertson just steals this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think the movie would work nearly as well without him. So I I have to give it to him as the best character, absolutely.
2: Yeah, I mean, I could see other actors in the role of Dobbs. It was going to be, I think, an interesting movie regardless. But yeah, he just walked in and classed the place up and just, yeah, he owned it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and speaking of coping with death, one of the things that Ronald Chusette had said was that he believed that Uh, Jack Albertson wanted to be in this film and agreed to be in the film because he felt it would help him cope with the fact that he was in the last days of his life. Like he knew that he was on his way out and he felt that being in this this particular film would help him kind of come to terms with his own death and help his audience come to terms with his death, which I thought was really interesting to use Dead and Buried as a a tool for coping with your own mortality.
1: Yeah. And yeah, I think his entire performance, um, everything about him and his character that he plays in this it's such a fun thing to think about that he would be in a film like this as his final film or what he, he may have known was going to be his final film. The fact that he is a guy who had been in Willy Wonka and Poseidon Adventure, all these giant Hollywood pictures.
2: Yeah, he was a class act. Yeah,
1: yeah. and that his final film would be this kind of slightly macabre, gross kind of yeah. horror film. And yet, that being his kind of way of saying goodbye and going out on that note... Um, even though we, we tend to look down on horror, you know, society tends to look down on horror, especially a film like this, his entire performance just elevates the rest of this film and makes it feel so much classier. Just like you said, he was a class act. And um, mm. yeah, I think he just he adds so much to the overall film, but then knowing that he was going through what he was going through and kind of him making that decision and expressing that through the character. And, mm. and again, uh, discussing death in that way, I think is really fascinating. I love that moment when Dobbs pushes himself out of the... Um, Cold storage. Yeah, sits up, just, <laughs> he there's no up. reason for that other than he's just being weird. Yeah, because he's it. not even dead at that point. He's just being weird.
2: He's just taking a nap. You he's know. taking a nap in cold storage, and I, I fucking he loves love his that. Job. <laughs> yeah, he really loves his job. He does. That I think is actually kind of like the main takeaway from the movie is you know love what you do. It mm-hmm. wouldn't be work if you love what you did, yeah. and Dobbs fucking loves what he does.
1: Definitely. But
2: yeah, and that's I love that. I love I love how funny this movie is at times.
1: Yeah, and again, it's just it's so twisted and dark and like I said very nightmarish it feels like you were watching someone's nightmare unfold and I guess in this case it's Dan's but yet there is that thing of like even nightmares can be weirdly kind of funny sometimes and you get so much of that dark humor in this throughout uh, between like Dobbs and his interaction with Dan and just kind of the humor between people one of your other favorite characters Ben the go ask your wife guy
2: go ask your wife I fucking love Ben He's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something a little funny about about Ben, and I think it is partly the accent, but it's also I love the way that that actor kind of hammed it up. I mean, he was mm-hmm. just. He was overacting, and I believe that he was doing it on purpose. And I, I thought that that was really great. Yeah, Ben Ben was really funny. Betty, of course, which I talked about earlier. Fucking God love Betty. She's just amazing. And then you have the principal driving up next to Gillis, you know, at the filling station. And he's they're having that conversation. When he goes, I am the principal, after all. Or whatever he says.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. <Yeah. laughs> um, lines like that. The delivery of lines all throughout this movie. But especially ones like that, that feels weird. There would feel weird in any other movie when you think about the fact that that is someone who has been made into a zombie who has been given memories. He's just kind of bad at acting like the other zombies. Yeah. (laughs) And I look at that as this, he just, he really, he's really trying his best to be (laughs) the best zombie he can be.
2: You really liked uh, Nils, the drunk at the docks, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yes.
1: yeah, definitely. Which the the novel made me love him even more, but oh, yeah, yeah, he's yeah, so much to... fun to watch in the movie. He's like, he steps out of a cartoon for a couple of seconds <laughs> and enters this movie and you know, unfortunately everything befalls him.
2: You, you were talking about earlier today, you were talking about why Nils is drunk on the dock <laughs> and you learned that reading the book. And I really, can you remind me what that was?
1: Yeah. That's one of my favorite things from the novel, um, is the, the backstory of Nils, which We see him in this movie, he's a drunk, um, just stumbling about doing whatever he's kind of doing there, and anytime you see kind of a drunk character, especially in a horror film, one's expectations might be that their backstory is something really tragic or awful, or he's divorced three times and he lost his best friend in a scuffle i don't you know all sorts of terribly depressing stuff they're
2: always sad drunks Mm -hmm. yeah
1: but no in the novel it's just that he has been at sea for many many years and as he's gotten older he's he's gotten less work because he's not one of the young guys who can go out and do his thing and the whole reason for him being drunk in this film is not so much even just the lack of work because he has a job here he's the night watchman at this place no the whole reason for him being drunk it's because he's bored. <laughs> That's all. Oh. Which
2: is great. I, well, and I love that even though that full backstory didn't make it into the film, he does say like 20 times, I've been around boats my whole life. And mm-hmm. so he does. Oh, he loves we, his boats. Yeah, he does. We do kind of establish it. And then when he picks up the hitchhiker later, what does he do? He points out his fucking boat. Uh-huh. Like,
1: you know, he's just really. Nils loves his boats. Uh,
2: yeah. So I like that they, that they actually did kind of throw that in there <laughs> without elaborate on it so much. Well, so how did you, how did you find the book? Like, I mean actually hold on that was a very antiquated way to ask that question did you enjoy the book <laughs> uh, well
1: i ordered them on amazon um <laughs>
2: i did not mean to ask that question like this is the <laughs> 1950s <laughs> did you enjoy the book
1: <laughs> yeah I, I definitely enjoyed the book um novelizations because i can always be hit and miss and this one was i, I would definitely say it was more hit than miss um And it was interesting. And it it made me, and I I said this to you earlier, that it made me want to seek out uh, any of the other iterations of the original screenplays, because I wanted to know like how much of the book was based off the screenplays, how much were they just making up kind of on their own, just kind of wondering like where they got certain elements from, because there's definitely some story beats in the book that are different. Um, But yeah, I, I very much enjoyed it. I mean, it felt like I was just which I suppose is what a novelization is, it felt like I was reading an expansion of the the movie with some slight changes here or there.
2: What would you say was like one of the most significant changes from you know, screen to book?
1: Yeah, so one of the biggest things I noticed was um, the way the kind of crime story mystery element plays out. Because in the film, there's only one burning, and it's um, Freddie or George at the beginning. That becomes a... Um, a motif in the book is that every fate that uh, one of the victims falls to is some form of burning. Every accident surrounds some burning. (laughs) Um, I could find a much clever way of of saying that every time, but, um, but yeah, then uh, the next one is Nils who in the, uh, in the movie, we see him just like hacked up with some sort of bladed thing um, oh yeah, well
2: yeah, because they they beat him across the face with like a giant hook of yeah, some kind. Yeah, like slash yeah. through his
1: his face and mm-hmm. his eye, and then they slash his throat. Yeah. Um, but no, in the uh, in the novel, that entire dock is burned down, and he burns with it. Huh. And anyway, he's eventually reanimated as well um as like we see in the movie but um yeah so he's also burned and then um the uh the hitchhiker she gets i think locked in the the truck that she's picked up in and that gets set on fire so she doesn't get her head crushed like we see in the movie so every every person who becomes reanimated is burned in some sort of way and it becomes a bigger part of the investigation for dan is that he's following up on what seems more like in the novel like genuine accidents that all surround kind of an arson type Mm -hmm. situation rather than immediately jumping to murders he does still suspect foul play and stuff like that but it's definitely more kind of an arsonist subplot thing going on um interesting but yeah that's that's one of the the most significant changes differences i guess the the haunted house scene um all of that happens in a to me, a, a short amount of time in the film. In the novel, it's almost two whole chapters. Uh, I think I counted like 20 pages worth of the novel. So out of 187 pages of this novel is, 20 of those are spent just on them <laughs> going through that house, getting attacked and escaping, which is just an absurdly long time to, to spend on that moment.
2: Now, you and I have watched this uh, together a couple of times and independently uh, a couple more than that, but I don't think we've ever talked about this before. Do you find this movie scary?
1: Not anymore and it's not one that um, <laughs> what movies even scare me anymore um, <laughs> like the Sentinel or as above so below those movies still scare me. I don't know if this movie ever really scared me so much as it absolutely creeped me out and it mm-hmm. has like I said a couple of times by now I'm sure uh, that the film feels like a nightmare yeah and it follows that kind of nightmare logic and there's just there's so many components of this film that feel off kilter and wrong very intentionally playing on that uncanny feeling of like, we're seeing reanimated people who seem like real people, but then they really aren't. And the whole town feels that way. The whole movie feels that way. The whole movie is kind of this uncanny beast. And I think there's that looming sense of that throughout that still gets to me. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I, I love this movie so much and it's become fun to watch, but there's still something about it. It's just like, I feel kind of gross or just a little, unnerved watching it still right even though i know everything that happens and i love the performances and i've really gotten to know a lot more about the actors and all of that so does it scare me no but does it still impact me in a very significant way that not many other movies do absolutely
2: yeah what really gets me and and kind of makes this feel really nightmarish for me is melody anderson's behavior (laughs) when she comes to the
1: morgue oh god yeah and
2: what she's i mean because she's Gillis knows exactly what's happening at this point. Dobbs knows that the cat's out of the bag. Everybody is aware of what's happening except Melody Anderson, because she's still a fucking zombie. And so she's just walking toward him with her bubbly, charming, adorable self, asking what he wants for dinner, while her face is falling off and he's shooting her in the stomach. And everything she says sounds just a little divorced. Not a little. Very a, a divorced, divorced from the situation. Now. And and so that part really feels nightmarish to me. Like mm-hmm. like nightmare, like you were saying nightmare logic, it feels like nightmare dialogue. Like it's the, exactly the mm-hmm. kind of thing that would happen in a bad dream. It's so effective.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's the point in the movie where, at least for me, I start to feel a little sick. Because it's just like, I don't like any of this. I don't like how she's acting. I feel so bad for how Dan's reacting to her. Mm-hmm. It all feels just wrong. And obviously that's the intention and... Well done filmmakers. But, yeah. <laughs> um, and that's the other fun of this movie is we, we have no idea what's actually real or not. We have no real grounds for the backstory of any of these characters, even no matter how much we feel like we might know Dan, we actually know nothing about him by the end of this movie. Were they ever actually married? Because Dobb says I gave her to you. So who were they before this? And, and God, it's just there's so much to unpack and none of it is really answered. Yeah. Um, Again, like Phantasm. (laughs) Answers one question, gives you ten more. Um, I
2: love that, though. It's just, I think that's so much more fun.
1: Yeah. So you and I just got done watching The Curve the other day.
2: We did. Yes, you showed me that. Another film that you brought into my life. Thank Mm -hmm. you.
1: (laughs) Which um, was so fun watching your reaction to the ending of that because it had so many twists.
2: (laughs) So many fucking Um, twists
1: how many was it like four or five somewhere in there it was at least
2: four it was definitely like a you know twist and then twist again and if you think you've twisted too many times twist once more it was definitely the curve yeah
1: (laughs) so um it it just hit me earlier today that um you were commenting about how many twists that movie had and how kind of ridiculous it was and
2: in a good way i enjoyed uh, it in a good way yeah Yeah.
1: um which i'm glad you enjoyed it but but we had talked about like what other movies have that many twists but I just realized earlier today, as we watched Dead and Buried again, that Dead and Buried has three twists.
2: Yeah, because you have the twist that Melody Anderson is a zombie. Uh,
1: but one before that, kind of. one. That Dobbs is
2: responsible for everything.
1: Okay, well, yes. Okay, so that also kind of falls into <laughs> it, I guess. So maybe there's <laughs> so more than three.
2: What would be, how many? Okay, so what are the twists?
1: Well, my three that I had was that the town is dead.
2: The whole town is dead. Mm-hmm.
1: Then the um, Janet is dead. Mm-hmm. And then Dan is dead
2: yeah you're right and then in the midst of all of that we also have the reveal that Dobbs Dobbs is is responsible so four twists to this ending so
1: it's not quite as like insane as what the curve was in terms of execution of those twists because they're a little bit more gradual or they
2: (laughs) the distribution the twistribution the (laughs) twistribution was was bettering this yes exactly (laughs) well you know I have to ask I can't talk with you about this film and not ask what are your thoughts on Joe Renzetti's score
1: it's okay um (laughs) okay (laughs) <laughs> the opening and closing theme, I think are befitting of the film. Um, they're in my opinion, the best cues, even if they are, I think the exact same piece. I just, I love that we beginning with this very solemn kind of haunting piano melody that just kind of lulls us into this sleepy town. And then eventually becomes this kind of almost cliche love theme <laughs> that is almost kind of mocking what happens with George and uh, the woman in red. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I love that entire theme. The rest of the score, I think, is effective. Um, but it's it's scary when it needs to be. It hits the beats that it needs to. Um, but there's nothing terribly outstanding about it. Nothing terribly memorable about it. But, and a, a really good score doesn't always need to be memorable. It just needs to do its job. And Joe's score does its job.
2: I wonder, did, do you know if Renzetti wrote any of the big band music for the film?
1: I seem to recall from one of the commentaries that joe helped Mm -hmm. um maybe not composing any of the big band music but helping like select the music for them or with them gotcha um the big band music is just as much of a score throughout this film it's very much dobbs's score and I, I just, I love the use of it throughout. Um, it falls into this kind of category of uh, music called Hauntology, which I don't know if you've ever... I
2: was literally just talking about Hauntology in the intro to this episode. <laughs> okay. Well,
1: then your, your audience is already briefed. Yeah, well, I mean, um, I mentioned
2: an article about Hauntology, yeah. but yeah.
1: <laughs> so yeah, that's the case uh, with the music specifically with Hauntology is that it's hearkening back to this bygone era. And it directly ties in with who Dobbs is as a character, as a person, that he's... Um, I, you and I talked about this earlier that he's not wanting to let go of um, of history and of of life in a, in a very specific way. And um, his listening to that specific era of music, I think really reflects who he is as a character. There's several times, like the first time we hear big band music, it's coming from a hearse, which I think yeah. is really fun. <laughs> um, big band music is pretty much always fun or danceable or romantic in its own right. So when we have that moment, when he's reconstructing the face there, um, where the hauntology comes into it specifically, or, or most kind of in the forefront um is <laughs> one of the few times we hear both um the source music the the diegetic music with the non-diegetic music at the same time because we have Joe Renzetti's score blending with the big band music so we have the two playing over the top of each other during the reconstruction scene and it sounds wrong yet it's got like this twisted kind of timelessness to it so it's just it's a nice juxtaposition the the score and the the music
2: can you explain diegetic And non-diegetic music to those of us who have no idea what the fuck that means.
1: (laughs) So diegetic is any sort of music that we hear within the, um, within the, the setting of the film itself. So diegetic music in this case would be um, in the, in this context would be Dobbs's music that he's playing or listening to because the characters hear that he hears that that's diegetic music. Non-diegetic music is the score. Or if you're watching a, 90s movie, like Hackers, and there's a song that's playing over a montage, that becomes non-diegetic. Um, so yeah, in this case, for the hauntology the portion of that reconstruction scene, um, we have Joe's music being the non-diegetic, and then Dobbs's music being the diegetic, and they're both playing on top of each other.
2: I think that's interesting. It's, you know, something that we talked about actually very recently were certain aspects of filmmaking, particularly in a movie like this, that are often taken for granted. I didn't even notice that there was a score going on underneath the big band music. Mm -hmm. And so now I want to go back and watch it again and pay like very distinct attention. (laughs) Yeah,
1: And again, I I feel bad for just saying Joe's score to this is fine because like I said, the key thing is that a good score doesn't need to be something that's memorable. It Mm -hmm. just needs to be something that's doing its job. That, that should always be what a score does to begin with. That's (laughs) if you fucked that up, you've made a a bad score. Mm -hmm. Um, So the fact that, I don't come out of this remembering a lot of the score, other than you know that opening cue. It means that it did its job, and the fact that you didn't notice it during that one scene means that it did its job. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you go back and listen to that, Joe's score just slowly starts to kind of seep in, and that's the thing with Joe's score throughout this is that it it isn't terribly memorable, but it's it's always kind of there. It's, it was kind of looming about, and it's very creepy when it needs to be. But, um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of like unsung heroes of filmmaking, um that is the thing is that sometimes film scores just, they don't quite always get the recognition that they should. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts on the film before we wrap up?
1: Yeah, I guess firstly, I'm just, I'm so glad um, that I was able to introduce you to this film and, and that you wound up enjoying it as much as you have. And yeah, thank um, you
2: so much. <laughs> yeah. And I'm,
1: I'm just so glad that you're doing a, uh, an episode over this and then covering it. Um, hopefully far more eloquently in your actual review than I have in our <laughs> conversation, but oh, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, uh, no, this, this film is just one that deserves so much more attention, um, than it gets and continues to get. And, and I know that it's become more of a cult favorite over the years, um, and that people continue to find it now and again. Um, but in terms of just genuinely well-made, well-thought-out horror films, this just, it deserves to be in that canon of <laughs> films that just deserve more love and attention and so I'm just really grateful that you, that you're covering the film here and you know hopefully more people will latch onto it and and give it a chance and I also recommend the novelization um but yeah just i hope more people find this movie and dig it and hopefully this helped turn some people onto it and i guess at this point probably would have spoiled the entire thing so maybe not <laughs> but
2: to thank gory rory for hanging out tonight and sharing some of his thoughts on dead and buried and for you know creating the music for final girl friday so long ago which to this day is still my favorite thing about it And to anyone out there listening, how do you feel about Dead and Buried? Do you also feel it deserves more attention than it gets, or do you think we gave it too much praise tonight? If you have any thoughts at all you'd like to share on this, or any horror movie really, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on the Slasher app, my username is Final Girl Friday, Instagram at Molly Oblivion, or if you prefer old-school correspondence, you can email me at finalgirlconfessions at gmail.com. Before we wrap up tonight, it's time for this week's Worst Case Scenario. Give me a worst case scenario and make it grim. This week's question was it was kind of a complicated one. First of all, I probably should have asked it back during the re anniversary, but I think it's equally fitting for dead and buried, and secondly, I knew it had the potential to stray into fairly dark and melancholy territory for some of us. I always want this segment to be light and fun. It's never my intention to dredge up painful memories for anyone or seem disrespectful to those we've lost, but movies like this one, as well as Reanimator, Night of the Living Dead, Pet Cemetery, they also confront their audiences with loss and unpack the many ways in which we cope with it, so I was curious to get your take. So this week's question was, you've just discovered you have the power to reanimate the dead. Would you do it, and who would you bring back first? You guys had a lot of interesting answers, ranging from entertaining and thought-provoking to a little heart-wrenching phobophile said somebody i don't care about need to see if they come back wrong before i do something i regret which is very wise i feel like herbert west and william dobbs could have learned a lot from you paul m said nice try i will not be responsible for the zombie apocalypse a smart move Horrorhound said john candy shirley walker for gory rory lobostein said jeff hanneman of slayer which god i hadn't even realized it's been almost 10 years since jeff hanneman passed away that's crazy. I feel like it just happened. Movie Man said George Romero because he needs to make Road of the Dead, which I'm ashamed to admit this. I feel like a terrible Romero fan, but I actually hadn't heard of Road of the Dead. Reading about it, it seems like it's another installment in the Living Dead series, directed by stunt coordinator and Living Dead veteran Matt Berman. Uh, Still sort of in the works, but... Of course, Romero's passing through a wrench in the production. Romero described it as a demolition derby with zombies at the wheels, and it sounds like such a good time. I really hope it gets back off the ground. Though it would be amazing, I agree, to have him back for it. Ms. Barella and Old Man Voorhees said David Bowie, though Voorhees noted he probably wouldn't like it, which... That seems to be overall the consensus. Most of you who answered said you wouldn't do it even if you could. And that's where my mind keeps going. Every time I think of someone I'd love to bring back, like Rod Serling, I feel like the world could benefit greatly from a little bit of that Rod Serling wisdom right about now. It's immediately followed up with like, God, I would not, I would not want to bring him back (laughs) As nice as it is to think about a world where, like, Anton Yelchin and River Phoenix come back and continue on with the careers they had ahead of them, or one wherein the people we've known and loved could be returned to us, I do think there is a kind of bittersweet comfort to be gleaned from the lessons in Dead and Buried. I think if Ronald Chuset is right, and Jack Albertson chose to play Dobbs in this movie as a way to cope with his own mortality and help his audience say goodbye, it's Just one more inspiring reminder that the horror genre is ever working hard to help us make peace with death, which for me is one of the reasons it's the most important genre of film we have thanks so much for hanging out with me tonight guys final girl friday is hosted by you know me molly oblivion edited by jonathan bradley scored by gory rory huge thanks to my creepy janitors over at patreon chad chris and deuce thank you guys so much for your continued support i'll be back in two weeks on march 3rd talking about curtains from 1983 in the meantime stay safe stay sane ask your life and until next time creep it real